best part about having a small podcast is, Stephen? You have a big Because d- you know what they say, small podcast, big d- I haven't heard that until today. What's the best part about having a small podcast, kid? This isn't a ge- well, it's not like a joke, but I was, it's the fact that we don't have any ethical dilemmas regarding sponsors. You know, when they come to us, they're like, we'd love to pay you all this money for you to name drop this product. Oh, yeah. Because I was just reading the other day about, like, apparently HelloFresh was union busting and stuff, because you know how there's some socio-political turmoil on the earth. But uh, strikes are happening in many industries right now in the States. Sometimes the money that's in your pockets is uh, it's dirty. It's dirty money. It does pay to sell out. Not be paid. <laughs> well, I Well, yeah, it helps one sleep at night, but it would be nice to be rich. It would be nice <laughs> to have more listeners so that we can have more engagement. Because I, I love the conversations and the creative aspect that goes into making this podcast. And I'd like to see more of it. It's true. I was listening back to some of our earlier episodes and we really tried to define who we are and what we're doing like almost in every episode before we started and Did we <laughs> feels like a uh, that's gone <laughs> now it's just it a used mess. to be like hey we're a cold pop shoot <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> we're a, a pulp crap shoot <laughs> We're a pop culture podcast for, I forget what the thing was, for listeners and non-listeners or whatever. There's something here for everyone. I say for critical thinkers and casual listeners. That's basically everybody. Yeah. Right? And there's nothing wrong with not being a critical thinker. Or is there? (laughs) (laughs) We don't really have a hook. I don't think, I mean, I think the hook is that we don't have a hook at this point, you know? It's the sex appeal. It's the sound and the timber of your voice. The timbre. The timbre. The timbre. So what are we doing today? First, I'd like to talk about that abomination of f- the five-minute Jurassic World Dominion preview. Ooh, Mr. C- we Colin talk about- Trevorrow, <laughs> he's back. <laughs> I was really excited, honestly, and, and in a way I still am for this new Jurassic World movie. For those that don't know, Jurassic Park is my favorite movie of I all time. I say Jurassic Park is dead. <laughs> <laughs> But Sorry. no, it's it's my favorite movie of all time. It's the reason that I wanted to get into filmmaking, that I care about film today. And in my opinion, since The Lost World, we haven't had a good Jurassic Park movie since Spielberg left the franchise. And so, man, Jurassic World had a lot of nostalgia feelings that went into it, but I just don't think it was proficiently directed. I think there was a lot of attempts and then misfires and... And who's to blame, Stephen? It's funny. I I thought Jurassic World had a decent story, but was poorly directed. And then Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, the sequel, was really well directed, but had a terrible story. So it was like the exact opposite. And then Colin Trevorrow, after getting fired from Star Wars for clearly being a bad director. (laughs) Damn. I honestly don't think he's a great director. I I don't understand the hype. I think based off of nostalgia alone, Jurassic World made over a billion dollars. And because of that, Colin Trevorrow is like, yeah, we should let him direct things now. I I just don't think he's actually good. And I I think that this five-minute preview, and I'm judging this based off of the quality of Spielberg's filmmaking. That's a tough bar to reach. I just think that the script and like everything about this little five-minute preview, including how it was shot, like when it cuts to current day and... There's a Tyrannosaurus Rex uh, tearing apart a drive-in theater. It just is super cookie-cutter, proving, in my opinion, to not be 
special in any way. And it just really, really upsets me for the future of the, not only this franchise, but just this movie that's coming out that's been delayed by two years. But yeah, really not thrilled. And I love Jurassic Park. Like, I genuinely do. I still have all of my original Jurassic Park toys from 1993. Really? Yeah. Anyway. Good toys. Today we're here to talk about something that's not actually Jurassic Park. We're here to talk about an anime. Uh, and yes. it's And it's not Evangelion, which still hasn't come out. What's funny, actually, oddly enough, is we recorded the Evangelion podcast, but... Months ago. <laughs> we just It's so much of a, f- a feat for me to actually edit the thing that... It's just sitting there right now. But there's this anime that was turned into a live-action television series on Netflix that just came out this last weekend called Cowboy Bebop. You may have heard of it. And because of that release, Gabe and I are going to talk about the anime and what makes the anime so good. Before we review, on the next episode, the live-action version of Cowboy Bebop. Uh, But what's kind of funny about this is... Over two years ago, I started watching it because I I do love anime and I love to watch anime every now and then. And I started watching it before this Netflix series was even announced. There's always been rumor about a live action Cowboy Bebop of some sort uh, being made. But before the the Netflix series was even announced, I started the series and I it took me over two years to finish because I liked to to sip it like a fine wine. <laughs> I like to savor it. An episode a month. Yeah. And uh, here we are to talk about it. Yeah. I had started it a long time ago as well, because obviously it's extremely iconic mm-hmm. and one of the most well-known for Western cultures as far as anime goes. Uh, but yeah, I had never finished it either. I always just kind of lost the thread. Yeah. But it is known as being a gateway anime. A lot of people get into different kinds of anime by watching this one first and and because of its appeal to western culture people often can watch this and go hmm maybe there's something here maybe there's something to anime that is actually gripping and a little bit yeah charismatic enough for me to want to continue to watch more and this show is definitely unique and i think there's a lot of reasons why it's unique and all of those reasons are why it's considered i guess now you could consider it historic and monumental to a lot of what animes and and cross-genre media has taken from today. And that's because of this anime that came out in 1998. It lasted for 26 episodes, and they did a movie afterward that uh, you could have just inserted somewhere into the 26 episodes. Yeah. It's sort of like a monster of the week, much like a Smallville or X-Files kind of thing. Uh, And the overarching story takes sort of a backseat, but that's also where the beauty in the show lies. It is a slow burn. It's a very slow burn. In terms of that overarching narrative. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's funny because you were telling me like you were curious where it was going, so you kind of had to jump ahead and read. Because ultimately, this is kind of like the Seinfeld of animes where Seinfeld is classically noted to be a show about nothing. This anime is like an anime about nothing. It's it, it seemingly that the characters don't really have any sort of arc at all, that they're just kind of existing. So after doing some research, I come to find that that is the point of the show. <laughs> and really quick, the, the whole idea and the plot behind it is that it takes place in the year 2071 after... 
people have started to leave Earth and sort of exist around our own galaxy. And different colonies have spread out and started on on moons of Jupiter and, you know, different kinds of... um, All across the galaxy. Asteroids and stuff. Yeah, all across the galaxy. And we can travel across the galaxy within a matter of minutes. And so the technology exists, but we still use old technology as well. There's a lot of classic 50s cars or 70s cars and meanwhile there's you know spaceships and it's called cowboy bebop because the show follows a one ship called bebop with a few people who are bounty hunters and in this universe they call bounty hunters cowboys from the get-go the show opens very slowly the show takes its sweet time around every corner it opens very slowly with this very noir driven montage of a rose falling into a puddle on a rainy day and a guy kind of having flashbacks or dreaming. And then it goes into this wicked hot jazz number with like a lot of like picture in picture, like boxes of different scenes moving throughout the frame. It's like a pop art style kind of yes uh, montage. Yeah. And this is like when I instantly fell in love with it, the art style, the genre blending, you have noir, you have action, you have drama. Meanwhile, set to all of this kind of forties, fifties, uptempo jazz. It was just immediately brilliant because it had that whole kind of retro futuristic star Wars, old tech spaceship, like everything's falling apart, but it almost seems like it's set in the twenties, but it's in the future. You know, it's, it's, that's the thing that this show does so well. And one of the reasons that it's so iconic is the fact that it genre hops and genre blends really, really well. And many, many things that are made today or have been made over the last couple of decades were taken straight from this show. And meanwhile, each episode is sort of about these bounty hunters as they go trying to get bounties and capture different people and they're always kind of messing up along the way the main character is sort of ambivalent about life his name is spike spiegel and he seems to not care about anything and even says at some point to himself that he just kind of is living like he's in a dream waiting to wake up Um, the owner of the bebop ship his name is jet black and he is a kind heart with a big muscular body (laughs) the heart is the strongest muscle and he is often i think you know a lot of the moral compass of the show and keeps spike in check and then another character shows up her name is faye valentine and she has a broken past and storied past just like spike and jet do but the thing is that none of them can really talk about it (laughs) and none of them really know how to talk about their feelings or emotions or connect with each other and all of them just constantly or getting angry with one another or frustrated and storming off at some point. And that's basically the show. Uh, there's a fourth character who's a young dog. <laughs> I was gonna say a young girl named Ed and she's a, ha- a computer hacker who's like a prodigy genius. And, uh, she's super charismatic and weird. Very quirky. Yes. Very, very quirky. She's, <laughs> but a lot of the, this show is often weird and there's a lot of weird elements often due to the genre blending, but that a lot of the weirdness comes through Ed's character. And then there's also, yes, there's a dog named Ayn who's a a corgi, what is also known as a data dog because the dog is like a computer dog, something. Yeah, somehow enhanced with Somehow enhanced, knowledge, Probably like neuro implants or something. Yeah, but that's the show as far as it plays out. And then 
uh, what happens in the show. And then toward the end of the season, after it's 26 episodes, the characters do come and find resolution or some sort of resolve to sort of fill the gaps of their storied pasts and then at some point come to some terms of acceptance and then they all move on. And yeah, that's the show. Beautifully said. Yeah. And still vague so that nobody has any idea. Well, it is vague. I mean, it's even vague whether, you know, characters live or die or or whether they're going to come back or, you know, stay away at the end. You, you just don't know because mm-hmm. the whole show, almost every episode, someone's leaving or coming back or almost dying or, you know. And that's kind of what the show's about, ultimately, is it's about that time of your life when you don't have a clear direction and you don't know which path to take and you're meandering and trying to figure out what the purpose of living is. And it's very existential in that way, but it's also very grounded and true to life in that way. And I think that is a large part of the appeal to why it can draw in wider audiences that may not be privy to anime previously. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> well said. But you have any in- <laughs> Do you have any information about uh Yes, the production of the, the production, show. The production because I'm really interested. I I will say the one thing I do know is it's directed by Shinichiro Watanabe. Yeah. And then the composer who again, the soundtrack is just constant different kinds of jazz numbers and noir, so you're having saxophone, trumpets, drum sets and uh you know, clarinet, flute, that kind of thing. But she's become very rather famous. Her name is Yoko Kano. Kano? I think it's Yoko Kano. Famous for creating all of these timeless jazz numbers that are known throughout this show. And she also came back for the live action version, but we'll talk about that next week. Did she re... She she re-recorded and recomposed new things. The music's the best part of the new show. (laughs) (laughs) Spoilers. But yeah, um... Yeah, I'll take you through a brief history of the... Yeah, I don't know anything about it or why it was even made. Try to keep it concise, which is difficult for me. But yeah, Cowboy Bebop was developed in the 90s by animation studio Sunrise, led by, as you said, the creative director Watanabe. 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 Shinichiro Watanabe. And he was known for his development of Macross Plus, which was another groundbreaking anime for its combination of traditional CGI and computer-generated animation. I've seen the Macross series. I didn't know he had a hand in that. Sorry, not traditional. Traditional cell animation and computer-generated animation, so the blending of 2D and 3D. I didn't know he had a hand in that. Yeah, he was the one of the lead creatives on that one as well. He also worked on some Gundam series, Gundam 0083 Stardust Memory, so he's very familiar with anime. Other notable members of the Sunrise team were screenwriter Keiko Nubu... Nobumoto, character designer Toshihiro Kawamoto, the mechanical art designer Kimitoshi Yamane, and composer, as you said, Yoko Kano. Yeah. And producers Masahiko Minami and Yoshiyuki Take. I think I did that all right. You did. That was great. That was the first time. Uh, I didn't rehearse that at all. (laughs) No, you didn't. Actually, it didn't. Um, Yeah, Yeah. but for the sake of this, we'll focus on the two key characters, which are Watanabe and... Kano, because the music is, like we said, one of the more iconic parts of an already iconic show. So much so that she's like instrumental into the creative behind the making of the show. Like she was instrumental in a lot of how the show was going to play out and look and feel. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And one of the things I was going to say is that they were basically some of the music was composed before the show had even really congealed in its characters and its plot. I love that. And so they were going back and forth over time and the music was informing the narrative and the narrative was causing more music to be made and it was a circular kind of inspiration. Those are always my favorite kinds of productions. Yeah. Is when like the composer is instrumental or even like the sound designer is instrumental in the, the creation process, you know, mm-hmm. like Villeneuve's yeah. uh, Dune recently. Or Hilder, Gino yeah, the Tier and Joker. Joker. Yeah. Yeah. So Watanabe wanted to make a show around that time that would appeal to both younger audiences, specifically adolescent males, because that's a chunk of the demographic, (laughs) and sophisticated adults. Whoa, 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 what? What? Oh, he wanted to do both. Yeah, he wanted to cross that line and make a show that had something, not just for everyone, not, not to diminish any single part of it, but that was so rich and layered that different demographics could enjoy it. His main inspiration for this one specifically was Lupin the Third, which is a classic crime anime series from the 70s in Japan. And he, from that point, modeled the story and the show around Spike. Spike was the inspiration for everything that was going to happen and that cool and collected character mm-hmm. uh, that is like a pretty familiar archetype. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said it was, Cowboy Bebop was always meant to be like 80% serious story and 20% humor. And he even said that usually the writing team had the most trouble with the humor and the jokes because they were so dedicated to uh, the drama yeah. of the series. Yeah, I could see that. He also said the ending was planned from the start. Watanabe didn't want to be tied into a show for years. He cited Star Trek, uh, for instance, as something that would just keep going and going. He wanted something that was going to have a beginning, a middle, and an yeah, end. Yeah, very concise. Con- concise and... and uh, Wasn't it originally broken up into like four parts that were six episodes each or something like that? Uh, I don't know if it had an OVA style release like that. What I do know, what I was going to say in a bit that I can say now, uh, is that its original release was kind of stunted, both in Japan and in the States. Uh, Bebop aired in Japan on TV Tokyo in 1998, which was a, it's a, basically the network that premieres a lot of the anime. Yeah. And it had a main time slot. But due to its graphic nature and mature, you know, themes, as we would call them, it was originally hamstrung and only five episodes of the original 26 were shown, as well as a special. And it wasn't until a year later that it was played on a different satellite network that the entire run of the show was released. And that's when the ball started rolling. It'd be like, for instance, like if you showed something in a main time slot today on a on a basic cable network... With yeah, like yeah, a lot of yeah. know, violence and nudity. It just wouldn't work. So. Oh, I get it. The the same thing happened with, uh, like, very famously happened with the uh, mid '90s animated X Men series. Mm-hmm. They ran the episodes out of chronological order. So like one week, and it aired that way. So kids would like get all confused and like be like, yep. "What's happening?" That happens a lot, unfortunately. Even like with two-parter episodes, they would like break for like the next week would be the sequel to that part, but it would go to like a different episode that was supposed to be originally earlier in the series. It's so wild. Yeah, lessons on how to kill a show. <laughs> yeah, Lost. looking at you, Fox, with Firefly, which is actually. A- <laughs> Thinking about it is a better live action adaptation of Bebop than yeah what we have now. Anyway, Firefly is actually a really good example of a piece of work that probably was inspired by Bebop. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't even think about that until just now. And this show was basically pretty much success pretty quickly globally. 
uh, debuted on Cartoon Network's late night Adult Swim block on September 2nd of 2001, mm-hmm. being the first anime show on the block that night at that time slot, Midnight ET. And it became very popular, even though it also, like I said, had a pretty unfortunate debut there because uh, a week later, September 11th happened. And so, again, some of the more intense and graphic episodes of the original run were cut, and it wasn't until a year or two later that the whole show was seen in its entirety on Adult Swim. That is crazy. I didn't know that. And it's been playing basically since then because it's such a smash success. Yeah. Yeah. Real quick, jumping back to Watanabe and Kano. Watanabe had said he had hoped this was something that would be uh, important and iconic and remembered in 30 years' time, and it looks like he kept reassuring his team because they were uncertain of his vision for some of it, and, and it looks like he was right. that he, yeah. he did manage to capture lightning in a bottle. Yep. And so for Kano, like we said, the music was one of the first aspects of the series when they were beginning production, and most of the characters' story and animation were informed by her direction there. And Watanabe himself said that Kano did not score the music exactly the way he had asked her to, that she was kind of like a wild card, and she would often give him stuff that uh, he he either didn't want initially or he wasn't prepared for. But they ended up incorporating it in a lot of ways that even she didn't have intended. And that, like, because they use so much of her music, not just. That's all how jazz actually is. Yeah, it's very freeform. So so funny. Yeah. It's the perfect marriage of sound and, like, intention. Mm hmm. For the show, and you, you you end up getting these little happy accidents, you know, that are uh, very unplanned, like you said. Yeah, and yeah, I already said how they they basically had that circular kind of development process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the only other thing I was going to say was that, like you said, they had a movie developed in two thousand one or two thousand two that was kind of like mm-hmm. just an extended episode to spend more time with the characters because the way the anime ends, it is sort of the end of their story. And then there was uh, supposed to be. A live-action movie developed by 20th Century Fox, you know, circa 2008, 2010, mm-hmm. with Keanu Reeves as Spike. Mm-hmm. But it was stuck in production hell, and nothing happened until the IP eventually got picked up for a series. Which uh, live-action. Which is where we are now. Yeah, that takes us to the present. Yeah. Keanu Reeves. That'd be interesting. <laughs> in a way. I don't know if it would be good. If he wasn't such a trope of himself now... I think he would have done well. But the whole thing with Spike is there's a lot more going on like on under the surface. Yeah. And Keanu Reeves, albeit he's like one of my favorite people and one of my favorite actors, he just like, he doesn't, I don't think he could portray the depth and the, that quality that Spike has. The subtlety. Um, but he, I think he would actually do a good job be, like sort of just being the ambivalent Spike that we, that we would have liked to see in a live action portrayal of Spike. Yeah. And between The Matrix and John Wick, he's shown he can yeah. keep up with the physicality of it. Yes, yeah. He also has that the the body type that Spike has. Yeah. But it is nice that we have an Asian man playing Spike instead of another white guy, you know? Yeah. At this point. Why is this show special? I mean, if you could condense it, Stephen, and maybe personalize it, why do, why do you like this show? I actually have an answer for that because I, I thought about this. I really like Cowboy Bebop, the anime, because... It reminds me a lot of Twin Peaks. Twin Peaks is a show that all the while you have an overarching narrative and you may not know what it is. <laughs> you keep returning to watch the show to enjoy the tone and to enjoy your stay 
as a viewer, as an audience member, as a person who is trying to immerse yourself in the world that they're creating. And you enjoy the time that you spend there watching the show as if you're, you know, living there alongside the characters. Cowboy Bebop has the exact same feeling for me that Twin Peaks does. And I'm a huge Twin Peaks fan. I have a tattoo of it on my arm. Yeah. (laughs) Cowboy Bebop is the exact same way where I love the world that they built. I love the feeling and the tone and the look of everything and turning it on and just living in that episode. And, And even though it feels like sometimes nothing happened in the episode, I just enjoy the tone of it. You know, it's like because of the fact that it is multi-genre, you get a little taste of everything, which really just emulates jazz or even the genre bebop, which this show is named after. And um, yeah, I just really enjoyed it for that reason. And then after doing more research on it and coming to find what the show is actually about and remembering those times in my life that I did feel more ambivalent or purposeless in my life, you know, I could, you know, empathize and relate a lot more with the characters as well. For sure. What do you, how about you? Yeah, well, it'd be mostly piggybacking off of that. I mean, I've already, we've already discussed because, well, not for the people who listen to the, the cast, but we've talked about Evangelion. It's on the back burner. But one, one day you'll hear it. One of the reasons I love Bebop so much is the same as my love for Evangelion, and that is, it is the, the themes of, you know, like you said, existential ennui, I think is the, term where it's like boredom and confusion and frustration and also loneliness and dealing with your past looking to the future whatever that may be yeah and just what it means to just be hungry yeah all the time exactly to be hungry but to not know what for because yeah or to know what for and to be an un- seemingly unable to attain that thing yeah like how spike is just obviously so torn up over you know not being able to be with julia even though it's like the faded romance i love that analogy essentially plays out and over literally the whole show of him trying to just figure out what kind of food to eat the whole time yeah you know and that's just very analogous of his inward emotions about his past life and there's just such a level of maturity in delivering all of this with bebop and sunrise the team they had it doesn't fall into a lot of the classic anime tropes which most people who hate anime for one reason or another will point to you know like fan service stuff like that obviously faye valentine as a character is very like there's a like a level of promiscuity and what that is is part of her character but it's not like even in moments of evangelion it's not like it's like shoving it really down your throat <laughs> so to speak it doesn't feel like the fan service is ever upstaging um, the narrative. Yeah, it's it's the there if you want it, but you don't necessarily need to eat it. You yeah. know what I mean? It's, it's as far as throwing bones to the people that would Enjoy look that. for that. It's, yeah. it's a small bone. Yeah. And I would know. But it is there. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. And there's, like, the, the writing for the characters, it feels so natural that's something we talked about on the last cast with characters from like the vast of night. It mm-hmm. feels real. It feels natural, which is always a huge thing for me. There are always moments in modern media where dialogue is just so, I mean, we're not really talking about the live action adaptation today, but talk about a masterclass versus whatever the opposite of a masterclass is <laughs> a disaster class. Whoa. Yeah, there you go. I love that. Coined it. <laughs> um, masterclass disaster class. But 
Yeah, and just the world building too. For someone like me, whose favorite IP is Blade Runner, hands down, that level of like dystopic, yeah, uh, future retro futurism mm-hmm. really strikes a chord with me. Yes, uh, big fan of Firefly, like I said, and yeah. So a lot of my favorite things both influenced Bebop, and Bebop then influenced my favorite things. Yeah. So it just fits naturally into my personal. Totally. I think I'm still partial to the other classic that is Evangelion just because mm-hmm. it w- it went like much farther into the dark place yeah. that I am familiar with. Yeah, Evangelion deals with a lot more of uh, existentialism than than this even does, even though this does a lot to the point of where it, it can take you to dark places. Yeah. But, and I also enjoyed it more for that reason, so I would agree with you. But I, Cowboy Bebop is easily uh, up there you know just for its quality and it's yeah and i'm glad you mentioned it as a gateway anime because it is probably the first thing i would recommend for all these reasons if someone were to sure if i wanted to bring somebody into the fold yeah so if you are into 40s jazz country western rock and roll noir romance action tragedy (laughs) this is like a sci-fi western with retro futurism like we have said and uh, the show is in no rush and, you know, it's all about belonging and, uh, trying to find your place in the world. And if that sounds like something that would interest you, I definitely think it would be worth checking out. Yeah. So much so that we have made a brand new podcast episode cover. Yes. It is a banger. For it. The thumbnail. Little thumbnail. Steven's of, a bit of a graphic designer. Of its own genre, because I think that this definitely stands alone as one of the pillars of, especially in the last, I don't know, three to four decades of anime. I think this is definitely one of those columns in the ancient Roman uh, constructs. Pantheon. Yeah. Thank you for listening. We'll be revisiting oh, yeah. a lot of what we're talking about here. <laughs> Uh, next time <laughs> it's a compare and contrast episode <laughs> on the podcast when we uh, disassemble why the live action version of Cowboy Bebop is not as good as the anime and possibly even a couple things it might have done right yeah <laughs> <laughs> possibly Cowboy Bebop is available to stream on Hulu and Netflix currently and here is the original 1998 opening title sequence track entitled Tank by Yoko Kano. I think it's time to blow this scene, get everybody in the stuff together. Okay, three, two, one, let's jam.